Cool. All right, Packy, we're back after a brief hiatus. Glad Good to be to back. You. We both had a lot, a lot going. You in particular did, I think, 97 S1 Club articles. That's right. We covered every stock in the S&P 500. Uh, <laughs> in depth. Yeah, and could only do it with your help and the help of others. But I'm glad we get to do this again. As am I. Good to be back. Yeah. So today's um, going to be a little different, right? Yeah, we decided to mix it up. I think this is going to be fun. We basically put a tweet out and asked if people wanted to ask us some questions and feels like we got some good responses. Yeah, I'm excited to, to dive in. So it seems like the questions are kind of, they break down in a few different areas. One, it's around kind of the things that we write. And then two, it's really around like kind of how we write and how we think about the process and like what people should actually do with it. Because we can sit here and write and have people read it, uh, you know, till, till the cows come home. But like, what's the value there? I think that's maybe an interesting, interesting place to start. Uh, so that question was, how can readers best act and uh, best act on and utilize what they're learning from your writing? Do you want to kick us off there? I'm also happy yes. to if you don't have an answer. Yes, I can. I'll give it a shot. And um, I would also love to hear this from you. So I'll include it in my answer, which is sort of how you maybe started or maybe do we have that later? No, I think I think we can get into it, like how we started and maybe how we sort of like started to develop a niche as part of that. But, um, you know, I started out working on this August of last year and bit by bit sort of it turned from what was essentially like a different version of a medium blog that I thought would I'd very occasionally post things on into more and more of a product. Um, and so over time, I think the things that I hope people get from it and um, can leverage has changed a little bit. I think at first it was really about like saving people time. Um, and it was like, cool, bit of a link roundup of things I found cool this week. Um, and I think that's where like everyone sort of starts or often where starts. I started, yep. Yeah, because you realize, you think, okay, there are other people that do this. There's clearly a demand, like I could put my little spin on it and people will like it. And actually like some people do, um, but you eventually sort of realize that value over replacement is, is zero or very, very tiny. Yeah. And that the people who really like you are coming for that like tiny little twist that you're putting on it. And so if you like focus there, um, that's where you could really get value out of it and where you can deliver some unique value. Um, and so that's a very long way of saying today, what I hope people get out of it, um, is fundamentally multidisciplinary thinking, um, and the value of applying models from history and psychology and economics to the world of today, which to me is very much defined by tech. Um, and so basically giving you the, the mental calisthenics and models to start to think in an original way. Um, so that's the hope. Uh, very nebulous in that respect. No, I love that. I mean, I, and I, I don't think my answer on kind of any front is going to be too, too different. So I started writing mm -hmm. uh, last, uh, what was it, last April. So I've been doing this almost a year and a half now. But for the first year, it was mostly a links, a links roundup with the occasional essay. When I decided to start going deep, it started kind of a little bit more theoretical applied to, to some actual examples and then kind of has evolved to go the opposite way. So there's really kind of two things that I do now, which are 
one on Mondays, I typically do a company deep dive and like really try to include some strategic frameworks and some other kind of just ways of thinking about things in those essays. And then on Thursday, it's a little bit wild card, but normally focused on much earlier stage companies. And so I think like there's something interesting about doing almost like on Monday, it's a bit of a retrospective and like here are these big companies, like here's why they're really doing amazing things. And then on Thursday, it's like, here's why I think those same reasons that this company is already doing amazing things is a reason this company might do amazing things. And in terms of what people get out of it, I think it's, it's a little bit similar. One, maybe it's just thinking more deeply about a company that you haven't thought about before. Two, it's figuring out, I think a lot of business writing, and, and I really try to avoid business strategy writing for a while because so many people do it well. But I think what it, uh, what it misses in a lot of cases is that it feels very kind of dense and unappro unapproachable. So yeah. I try to make it a little bit more fun and use memes and whatever so that people can actually like think like, oh, if, if this idiot can figure out like how these businesses work, then I also can figure out how these, how these businesses work. Um, so I, I'd say that's kind of a big one is like really just learning how to think critically about things. And then um, there's this idea, I think, in, in everything that I write that like, there's all these companies that feel like they're already super valuable and overvalued and whatever. And I think people still deeply underestimate the impact that tech is going to have and how big the opportunities are for these companies. So certainly I like my national natural inclination is to be an optimist, but I think just like this sense of optimism, I'm probably too optimistic in a lot of companies and in a bear market, I'm going to look like an idiot. But for now, I mean, like, I really do think that there's just like massive, massive upside for these companies. And so people need to understand them better probably than they do as businesses. That's super interesting. Do you mind if I follow up on one quick piece? Let's um, do it. How do you select the companies that you do deep dives on? Like, is that, is there any sort of process to that or just like, yeah. damn, this is interesting. Yeah, it's more damn, this is interesting. So I have a list of things that I might want to write about at some point. And then inevitably that goes out the window and, and on like, Today, we're recording this uh, on a Wednesday, early afternoon, and I have no idea what I'm writing about for Monday yet. And so like, yeah. it's, you know, spending too much time on the internet, too much time on Twitter, and like really figuring out kind of like what the story is and if there's a different way to write about something that's kind of in the news or a company that, that people might have heard a little bit about but don't really deeply understand. So this week was Open Door, for example, because they, yeah. they went public via a SPAC with, with Chamath. Um, so hopefully somebody does something interesting in the next couple of hours so I can start writing for Monday. That's super interesting. Do you have, like, do you usually have Thursday locked and loaded before you, Thursday? before the day before? is certainly more collaborative typically. Um, so Thursday, I do a few different things. I do investment memos uh, where uh, the Not Boring Syndicate can actually invest in early stage companies and I'll write up a memo, which I think is a lot of fun in all sorts of ways. One, to be able to invest together, I think is really cool in an asset class that again, seems like kind of unapproachable from the outside, but it's just a bunch of small businesses and there's an easy way now through AngelList to be able to invest. It's guest posts. It's now I'm doing sponsored posts, which is interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of playing with kind of like how the how the audience feels about doing sponsored posts. But there's so many companies that I'm naturally interested in that like I, I would write about anyway that are also willing to pay for that, that I'm going to play with it. And, and I'm going to be as honest as possible about when I'm being paid and like kind of the bear case on the company as well. I'd tell everybody like, you know, I'm, I'm going to say things that are also negative about you. Like this has to be genuine. Um, but that's a really long way of saying because there's other people involved in those, those are coordinated ahead of time. Well, cool. interesting. Um, I feel like 
that we sort of half segued into a question about writing process. And I remember yeah. a few weeks ago on Twitter, I think you had like a hilarious diagram of your process. Um, how, how does it like typically work in the, in the nitty gritty? I mean, it sounds like probably a fair amount is just like suffering. It's a, it's a lot of suffering and I love it. So it's not, it's not even necessarily like personal suffering, although there is a little bit of like mental anguish, like right now I'm panicked that each week, I think that on Monday people are going to realize that I don't know what I'm doing and that like, I couldn't figure out what to write this week. And, and that pressure gets added when I now have sponsors and all of that kind of stuff. But the process ends up being pretty much the same every week, which is I figure out kind of on Tuesday or Wednesday or worst case Thursday, what the topic's going to be. And then I just dive as deep as I possibly can. So I'll come at things with like, typically, you know, the set of frameworks that I have locked and loaded. Those are like kind of the ways that I like to look at businesses. And then I'll just read as many good uh, articles, listen to podcasts. I think like Acquired FM is always a great starting point for, for kind of history of the company and, and those types of deep dives. And then, you know, founder interviews and CEO interviews, like just immerse myself in that world as much as possible and kind of figure out what the unique story is. Um, mm. And then it's really just a process of taking like the 50 pages of notes that I take and turning that into like some sort of story, writing a draft of that. And then typically by Saturday evening or Sunday morning, I'll have a draft. I send it over to my brother and my wife. They edit it. Uh, they're both like brutally honest with me, which is great. Mm. And then, you know, I literally like Sunday night, I'm writing until 10 and then Monday morning I wake up at 10 or 11 and then uh, Monday morning I wake up at like six, read through it fresh, make sure everything makes sense, scramble if it doesn't, record the whole thing, which now takes like 30 minutes because they're really long essays and then release it and then tweet about it and all of that. But it's a really a lot of research and then trying to like figure out the story uh, from the research, even though I go into it with a bit of a story. But yours feels, oh, unless you have a follow-up. I do have a follow-up um, because I think it's a difference between us potentially. Um, you take a copious notes before you start writing? I do. Ah, interesting. And w what do you use for it, by the way? So I, I have gone back and forth. I started with Notion. I went to Rome. Then I went to Google Docs. Now I'm trying to go back to Rome. Like there's, there's these tools that you almost feel guilty if you're not using because people say so many <laughs> yeah. good things about them. So I'm at least going to try to invest a month or so in trying to get fairly good at Rome so that over time I can find the connections between the different things that I'm interested in and, and I don't have to kind of start from scratch each time. Like I'll start tagging things now that are kind of conceptual in the different things that I'm seeing so that over time I can search that in Rome and, and find all of the examples in the notes that I've taken of that particular framework or idea or whatever else. Um, but, you know, Google Docs is also totally fine. Yeah, totally. I find myself defaulting more and more to it of just like, oh, whatever, it makes it easier if I want to share with someone. Like the sharing ability is really, a, it's just hard to find it as good somewhere else. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely write my drafts in Google Docs for that, that reason. What about you? Yeah. Tell me about your process because yours seems you mentioned it as a product before it seems more like a product and kind of more structured. So how do you figure out what you're going to write about and then walk me through the whole thing until you hit send? Yeah. I mean, so definitely different depending on sort of which series it is. So S1, as you know, is like much more collaboration and has a different process and in-flight has a different process, but for the weekly uh, Sunday piece, which is the one that I find hardest to write because it's just like all original thought of some kind where 
you're like trying to come up with a thesis of the world versus like interpreting something that already exists. Um, that I think like I have the same trouble that you do, which is like during the week, I'm really anxious about like, oh, I hope I'm going to be able to come up with some idea that isn't garbage this week. And I always <laughs> yeah. think it's about to be the week where it finally all comes crumbling down. Um, and so, you know, even the one that I wrote on Sunday, which in the end I had like a bunch of people say some really lovely things about, I mean, uh, 10 minutes before I sent it, I was like with my girlfriend being like, this is truly terrible. Like people are going to hate this one. You just but have to I, take a pause and thank, uh, <laughs> thank your girlfriend, thank my wife for dealing with like, I, I just become kind of like a basket case over the weekend yeah. a little bit. And like, she'll just see me as she's talking, like I'll stare off into the distance and she'll be like, you're thinking about the essay, right? And like, that's just constant. So thanks to, thanks to the partners here. Cause it's kind of annoying. Totally. There was like a running joke for a while when I was drifting off where it happened over and over again, where my girlfriend was like, what do you think about it? And I was like, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> it was true. <laughs> it was true. <laughs> um, we had anyway. dinner. Out, we had dinner last night outside in in the city. We went in for for a doctor's appointment, um, and I was looking across the street. We were in the West Village, looking at Boucherie. It was like beautiful, but I was like kind of looking up, and my wife was like, "What are you thinking about?" And I was like, oh, "I was thinking about uh, Microsoft licensing OpenAI." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, this is a, this is a sad state of the modern human. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, yeah, it's like the, it's like the uh, Instagram husband. It's like the Substack wife. Um, yeah, coin that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I spend that time. But then I honestly, I don't really end up doing any notes because I end up finding like what I want to say usually at the end of writing. Like I usually start with some weird story where I'm like, man, I'm so weirdly obsessed with Rasputin. I'm going to write about that somehow. And then somehow I find my way into it. Wow. Okay. I was, I was going to ask you how, because you weave so many different kind of source, sources into what you write. And there's normally something from a different millennium in the beginning of, of your essays. How does that process work? Um, thank you. I, I, um, so like last week, I was like, I'm pretty sure I want to write about power as a concept. I was like, how do I, like, what do I think about this? And then I saw VC guide and I was like, that's an interesting instantiation of like founder power that, that feels sort of under expressed because it's a reaction to VC power, but actually ends up showing the reverse in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and then um, I started reading theories about power. And so I like went down a rabbit hole of like looking up a bunch of different academic theories, which is usually where I like to start because I usually think there's a framework that you can apply to the modern world where you're like, oh, this theory from the 60s ends up being very valuable. Yeah. Um, and then Rasputin because I don't know, I'm just a weirdo and was just <laughs> straight up thinking about Rasputin a lot. <laughs> Does that normally, is that normally how it works that you think about kind of the central idea that you want to write about, like something like power? Or it, does it start somewhere different each time? It starts a little bit differently each time. I think I'm like maybe doing that a little bit more recently. Like I had, you know, similar thing with scarcity. Um, mm -hmm. And then also like a previous one where it was like the question of like, what is an office? And just sort of 
thinking through that was sort of fun. But I'm honestly not sure what I'm going to do about do this week. I'm vaguely thinking about the idea of um, like, is everything, a, is everyone about to become a bank in the influencer space? Like, do you remember the Kardashian card? No. <laughs> there, was a, there was a Kardashian card um, that was a blatant ripoff and um, didn't work at all. It was like in 2010. But like with embedded finance now, I'm like, maybe we're going to just like see that start to get, you know, like tucked into these different things. Um, so that's where I'm at right now with it. It's so interesting because I think somebody asked about kind of the, the trends that we're seeing or like the areas that, that we're interested in. And I think this is probably one for both of us. And I think probably a lot of our like starting points come from Twitter and come from maybe some of the yeah. same places. So this makes sense. But there were a couple of tweets. Balaji had one and then I forget who had the second one, but one was about how like as kind of manufacturing was to the 20th century, investing was will be to the 21st century where like that's just kind of the most common job is that everybody becomes an investor. Uh, so I thought that was really, really fascinating. And then there was one about how during coronavirus, more people and not just kind of like rich white males have started investing. And so like what that means to the mm -hmm. landscape. But I, I think there's something so fascinating with you know, as more and more things that you'd normally have to spend all of your time doing and like resources that you'd have to spend all of your time acquiring become easier to acquire. And I guess during coronavirus a little bit, there's something around the fact that like you just need fewer things. So like mm -hmm. you almost go up a meta layer like each time, like you go from the farm where you're like pulling the thing out of the ground or mining the thing out of the ground and in other cases yeah. to the factory where you're going up one level and figuring out what you do with that thing. And now like everybody kind of becomes a capital allocator. And so mm -hmm. I think like that progression is super interesting and whether it's bank or everybody becomes like, everybody has a rolling fund or a syndicator or whatever else. Like if everybody just kind of goes up one layer of abstraction, like each X number of years. That's super interesting. I, have you actually seen a great um, discussion of like incentives with rolling funds? Because that's something that I'm thinking about also. It's like, all of these are popping up. There must be some weird incentives that end up panning out that we're like not foreseeing right now. Um, I mean, there's some obvious ones, but like that feels, it feels under discussed despite it being a very buzzworthy topic. It's so interesting. Cause like, you know, I, I run a syndicate, but not uh, a rolling fund. And mm -hmm. I was very honest with people about the fact that like the incentives are really messed up in the favor of the person who runs the syndicate. And so like, I really am, am trying to do maybe an investment a month and like be super selective and have 20 calls for every investment that we end up doing. But your incentive when you run a syndicate is actually to do as many deals as you possibly can to the extent that you yeah. have like the $1,000 minimum that you have to invest in each deal. You get 15 to 20 X depending on what the carry is leverage on every syndicate that you do. And I, you know, spend days writing a memo and so like, it wouldn't even be possible for me to do it. But some people just like get a deal, put it in the syndicate, they get 15% carry. There's no fund that you have to return. So each one is a discrete opportunity for the syndicate lead to make a bunch of money. And so as long as you're right more than, you know, one out of every 15 or 20 times and with VC, it has to be kind of one out of every eight to 10. So it's like twice as good odds if you're running a syndicate that you'll, that you'll be able to get some money out of it. So the incentives there are kind of messed and, and I understand like why, people wanted to syndicates, a rolling fund is a little bit different, but I think it's all part of the same expression. And I think you probably agree with this of being able to turn audience into something else. And so like the first mm. instantiation of that was 
yep. selling products to people. Um, and then I think this is the, another really interesting one that if you have some unique perspective or even just access to deal flow and an audience, it's one way to monetize that wasn't previously open. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and it makes me wonder what happens to Twitter followers of big accounts when the account holder dies? Like, has there ever, has there been a discussion of like uh, inheritance of audience? Um, oh my God. Well, it's so interesting, right? Cause like, there's like a little bit of, I think newsletter lists are a similar type thing. And there's been some discussion of like kind of micro M&A in the newsletter space and you mm -hmm. can acquire lists and all of that. Yep. And I really don't know how much value there is to it. Like you really follow a, a Twitter account or a newsletter writer for a reason. Um, and like, that's the reason I don't want to jam a bunch of deals down people's throat because like there's that trust there that you like is the most important thing and gives you all the optionality in the world. And to kill that on any one thing is crazy. But I think the same thing kind of applies with a Twitter account. Like where if I took over Barack Obama's Twitter account, a lot of people would just be there because people don't unfollow accounts that often or even check Twitter that often. Mm -hmm. There'd be plenty of people who'd be like, this is just not what I wanted out of, out of this account. I'm going to not pay attention. Like there's almost no value in me taking over Barack's account. Yeah, which I think comes back to your point that like, because of the inherent end date of audience, you have to sp find ways both to like maintain a living, but also to get the most value out of it to like translate audience into wealth in these other ways. Um, totally. Cause like 3 million Twitter followers when you're dead is not really very useful. Has anybody turned it into a sticky SaaS product? Cause that's the one where it feels like it's kind of the best transfer. If you can turn audience into something that just is low churn and produces money over time. Totally. That's, that's probably the best, but most people are turning it into things that are like fairly discreet, whether that be a product or, or an investment opportunity or something else. I don't, I don't, I can't think of any examples of like a, a big SaaS business started audience first. Yeah. I mean, in a way, ConvertKit was started that way because Nathan <laughs> um, was like a great like ebook writer and had built a, a business doing that. I mean, obviously it's, I don't think he like necessarily like maybe didn't directly leverage audience to make that happen, but I'm sure it was helpful. Um, I've definitely thought about it with the generalists. Like I would love to make a nicer reading experience for S1s, like with, with some <laughs> finance people's uh, spend like five, 10 bucks a month for that. Like maybe that would be a fun use of audience. Um, yeah. but, but to your point, I don't think it's been done yet, but I think at least not at a large scale. Um, but I suspect we'll see more. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's essentially any type of business that would advertise on a newsletter or podcast, which are high LTV, fairly sticky businesses are the yes. types that you should probably just like directly start yourself at some point. Cause there's a reason that they're advertising to these audiences. That's so true. Yeah, that's that's the right barrier. Uh, maybe maybe uh, newsletters eventually uh, become just dev shops past a certain point. I mean, I, I I'm very good at thinking about like big ideas, and then like I need to get kicked in the butt to do um, you know to do the actual execution on it. But certainly, like that's a lot of what I think about with not boring. It's just like as it gets bigger, as it starts making money, like can I just bring in people and have them kind of experiment on different things like different, whether that be software products or investment products or you name it. I think like there's just so much you can do and it's still, despite the fact that everybody has a sub stack, so under, underutilized. Yeah, I agree. Stuff. 
I mean, we're talking our book a little bit, but yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> um, speaking speaking of, of talking our book. <laughs> great segue. <laughs> how about talking of both of your portfolios and which companies you're both, both bullish about? How about Man, you start? This, so I really don't actively manage much of a portfolio. I think like I, I'm not someone who... Uh, is paying attention to the markets of every minute, every day. So I have a little bit in a public account because I love public. Um, and um, what's up, Katie? Yeah, what's up? <laughs> hey, how do you know Katie, by the way? Um, Tommy, who was working on the uh, not boring with me for a little while, reached out, I think, to to public at some point a while they're the back. Best. Yeah, they're, they're incredible. Cool. Yeah. Um, Life, who's the co-CEO there, and Katie, who, you know, is obviously working there. And a bunch of other folks were all at Antco, where I worked in the past. So um, they're, they're homies. Um, but yeah, so I have a little bit on public. I'm pulling up my, my app to see uh, what I have in there. Honestly, like the highest conviction um, position I have right now is Twitter. <laughs> um, wow. Like, I just bought that, luckily, at the right time and has grown nicely and today especially has been a little bit of a crazy jump, but it just feels so under uh, monetized. It's insane. I know. And it's still so vital clearly for many conversations, whether that's politics or tech or sports. Um, and it just feels like if they get a really product and uh, monetization oriented CEO, who's not part-time at some point, that could be a huge unlock. Um, and then I also have a fair amount of Salesforce and, um, a fair amount of match.com love match. I think okay. it's an interesting company. Um, yeah, that's about it. How about you? I'm also in Twitter, although it's a very small position for many of the same reasons. I wrote a piece on how under monetized Twitter is. And I think like really in terms of companies that just like kind of, there's this idea of the Bill Gates line where like, you know, your platform, if you give away, uh, more value than than you take, mm. and like Twitter is so far above or below, depending on how you look at it, the Bill Gates line, and the, like it's the number one product that it, I would I'd pay kind of infinite amounts of money to stay on Twitter if someone's going to take it away from me, and yeah. yet they capture like that much of that value. Um, so yeah, Twitter has to be monetized, but I think that's a good buy. Um, I I'm going to die on the sale. I love Slack. It's a longer term. It's a longer term play, but in terms of just like stickiness of product again, once you have Slack in your organization, you're going to stick on Slack and I think they'll be able to do some interesting things. I'm not, I have not been super impressed with how they've handled COVID. I think like actually they might be hurt by COVID and that companies who weren't going to think about a group chat tool just thought about teams because they needed to do something. And so a lot of people that they would have had a chance to sell into, they don't because they're just using teams and they're on it and that's fine. Yeah. I still love it and I still think it's undervalued. So I'm going to hold on to Slack, but it's slightly less strong conviction than it was before. Um, I love Snap as a potential AR play. And, and just the fact that I think they're becoming more and more like uh, a Chinese super app than anybody else in the yeah. US. And so I think like the beauty in Snap will not necessarily be in the Snap app, but in the fact that like they just have their tentacles kind of in a lot of things and they build for themselves and then just open it up for other developers to, to put in their product. And I think like, as Gen Z gets older and has more money and blah, 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 all the apps built with kind of Snap's guts uh, are going to take off. 
So love Snap. Um, Tencent, I'm starting to build up a position in because it is a Chinese super app company and they just have yep. an absolutely unbelievable investment portfolio. Uh, SoftBank is a company I changed my mind on, but when I wrote about them, like they also have a pretty unbelievable portfolio and there's just such a massive discount because yeah. people think Moss is a crazy person. Uh, so I think that one's interesting. I don't know, there's a bunch. It, it's way too heavily taxed, so I'm going to start doing a little bit more like uh, I'm working with Fundrise on a piece for this upcoming week. I want to start doing... Uh-huh a little bit of real estate. I want to like go into different kinds of asset classes to uh, balance out my very heavy tech focus. I love that. Yeah, that sounds very sensible. And we must absolutely preface that this is not, or not preface, I suppose, uh, appendix. Yes, (laughs) um, that this is absolutely not investment advice. I am talking about positions of like 50 bucks. um, And regardless, you know, everyone should neither one of us is yeah neither one of us is an advisor i mean like that's another interesting thing about writing about these companies is that like this is my thoughts on a company whenever i write and whenever i'm talking about it now and anybody would be an idiot to follow me just blindly by reading only what i've written like you have to do your own research here a hundred percent and it's like it it's more important for what we're spending time on to be interesting than to be right in my opinion like my thoughts on a sector, I'm like, yeah, it might not be true, but hopefully it like gives a framework to think about something in a different way. And that is hopefully more valuable than just saying like something that is high probability, but maybe like quite dull. I think that's, I mean, I think that's one of the unlocks that I found when I said before that like, you know, I wanted to write about things that other people were writing about. I'm less worried about being wrong than I think other people are. Uh, And so you know, the last two things I've written, I've called back to old essays that I've written where I've got certain things totally wrong. Um, and I think that's, that's 100% fine. And it's more about the way that you think about it than anything else. Yeah, that's why I feel like it's harsh that when people like rip Scott Galloway, where they're like, look at Scott Galloway's anti-portfolio. I'm like, we are gonna, we're gonna disagree. Strongly. <laughs> I'm optimistic and wrong and nice and wrong. If you're gonna like tear companies apart, you better be right. So like, you know, like the best, the best short only hedge funds have like deep forensic accounting practices and like spies essentially on their teams. And like, you need like real conviction, I think to, to totally rip a company apart. Whereas I think like his audience responds well to him ripping people apart. And so like, you know, there's certain calls like, you know, Macy's is going to be bigger than Amazon or whatever that are just wrong. And he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, particularly dickish on but there are other calls where like he's just doing his shtick and like there are real people who work at these companies so like i'm certainly biased optimistic and like not being an asshole but if you're an asshole and wrong i'm more than happy if people rip on you oh i totally i think i think it's a public service to be an asshole in some of these circumstances you need to have someone who's like the fox in the hen house or the skeptic right 100 percent. but you know when you sign up for that because it is easier to attract audience that way. You know that if you sign up for that role, the other part of it is that people are going to rip you when you get it wrong. And I think that's like a trade that he's probably like, I don't think Scott Galloway gives a shit when I think about Scott Galloway, um, which is great. And like, you need that persona. I think he feels to, pretty upset a lot of nights when he thinks yeah? about, when he thinks about Packy. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, like, you know, like, I couldn't do that. I could not be the, the public villain. I don't think he cares. And I think that's great. And it's a great way to build an audience. And he's been, more successful than I'll likely ever be. But, you know, the other side of that coin is that people are definitely going to rip you. 
fair enough. Okay. So I think the argument is that if you go in for the sassy chat about tech, then you, you can expect some sass coming back your way. Yeah. It's the golden rule. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Um, you sort of talked about this a little bit. What, what's a product or industry that you've changed your mind about recently and why? You mentioned SoftBank, but maybe something else is, is more sort of product focused. Again, I probably get just like more bullish on things I research. I'm like, I really try to start <laughs> looking at things like kind of bearishly, but iBuying was one that I got into this, this week. Uh, so that's companies like Open Door and then Zilla Offers that buy houses. And I went into it kind of thinking like, interesting business, low margin, like, yeah, I don't know. I think you can't really buy homes with technology and like, there's just a lot of local knowledge came out of it thinking that actually like, you know, I buying or just bringing real estate online in a meaningful way. And I come from, you know, a real estate tech uh, company previously, but I think that you have to, let me restart that answer a little bit. The idea, I've gotten really sour on the idea of spending a ton of money up front to figure something out. And I think companies that didn't need to spend a lot of money in the beginning, got a lot of money, spent a lot of money. And so it just made me kind of bearish on like the whole, spend a lot of money up front, lose a lot of money, and then maybe one day it'll work out. Yeah. Looking into uh, into iBuying and, and Open Door this week made me more bullish that in the right context, you really need to kind of go full stack from the beginning and spend what it takes to, to accumulate advantages. And so maybe more nuance on that, on just the idea of raising a bunch of money and deploying a bunch of money. Um, not, I'm, I'm more gray on than I was black and white a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I found your piece like similar, like walked me through a similar journey where I was like, came into it kind of like, mm, um, and, and left it being like, all right, I, I see the play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows how this stuff is going to turn out either. Right. But like, yeah. It, just, it does feel crazy that the process sucks so bad that like it's almost like Twitter in that sense where we love the product so much that there has to be a way to monetize. Yeah. And similarly here, the current process is so bad that there has to be a way for someone to figure out how to monetize it. Yep, I totally buy that. Um, for me, I think the two things that I've like not changed my mind entirely, but perhaps evolved my thinking a little is um, Palantir and venture capital. Um, Palantir, I really went into it with what I would say is like an ax to grind almost. And I <laughs> yeah. had to pull myself out of it while I was writing the S1 club because I was like, I don't want this to just be a screed about Peter Thiel. Um, but what I ended up feeling was that it's an ethically complicated company and I probably am not ready to say yet whether I think like it is fundamentally immoral to provide software to the government when the government is run by someone who you don't agree with. <laughs> yeah. um, like, I'm not sure. Like, there are extenuating, like, on principle, I would say no, but then you're like, well, there are obviously extenuating circumstances depending on who's in power. Um, so that, like, I think became a little more complicated to me. Um, and also, as a business, I sort of fundamentally felt that they actually have built a lot of impressive products and probably a lot of products that have not been developed in this space for a very, very long time, if ever. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I left more of a buyer than a, than a seller. And I'm not actually going to buy just because I, I do feel sort of ethically conflicted, but yeah. um, hypothetically. What does it say about Peter Thiel that both of the companies that we changed our mind on were I mean, open door, not directly, but we're both Peter Thiel companies. Yeah, there you go. As the, you know, the, the veneer of Thiel is pretty unpalatable to most, I think, at this point. But, you know, under the hood, you have to reflect, uh, you have to respect some of the thinking, I suspect. I mean, maybe he's, maybe he's an, an Uber Scott Galloway, right? Where, like, he's just happy to take the arrows and his ideas people are not going to understand for a long time. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the way that I actually think. I, I need to think more deeply about it, but that he's willing to be the villain for a very long time to, you know, potentially make the world better. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's also the premise of every supervillain ever, right? The supervillain <laughs> always wants to make the world better. They're always like, wouldn't the world be unbelievable if we got rid of half of the population? But... <laughs> um, Anyway, so, and then VC, honestly, I just, this, uh, it feels like the market is extra crazy at the moment. Um, and, and, you know, writing the piece this week around sort of defensibility in VC just made me realize how tough it is to stand out right now. Um, and so that sort of just hammered that home a little bit. Did I lose you? No, I, I'm still here and I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, but your screen is frozen. I'm it's just stuck on that smiling, smiling picture. <laughs> I'm going to stop it and turn it right back on. All right, nice. Um, there we go. There we go. I'm back. At least I was smiling in that. But yeah, so tell me, tell me more about your, your thoughts on VC, because I thought that was, that was fascinating. Like your personality is potentially the only defensible aspect that you have. How is that a, a sustainable thing? So dive, dive into that a little more. Yeah, I guess this is something I'm sort of thinking about more and more, which is just like personality as a moat feels real suddenly, um, like through the creator economy, uh, for sure. You know, that I wrote a piece about Joe Rogan one day, you know, theoretically being able to IPO in some kind of structure. Um, and it feels like VC is going to go in the same direction to a certain extent, which is like the services are pretty commoditized. The capital is certainly commoditized. Uh, the proof of that at the moment that you see is just like escalating round sizes and valuations that I think are out of whack. Although I think the argument, you know, is the counter argument is that like, we're still underestimating the growth of tech. And so like, you can make the fund math work. Um, but that really like the VCs who could be breakout or really make uh, themselves eminent in the next era are people who are like empathy athletes of some kind and not the like, let me know how I can be helpful sort of lip service that VCs get an especially bad rap for, but like really someone who just has magnetism because of the way they are. Um, yeah. Who do you think, who do you think is in that camp? Like if you had a bet on somebody that was maybe a little less known now, who are like three VCs that you bet on? Well, that's a great question. Um, there are a lot of people who I think are really good at this. The ones that came to mind while I was writing it, who I like think I know well enough to be able to say, I, I, I believe this for real, um, is Nikhil. Um, I had him in my list, yep. He's just like 
everyone you talk to has so much respect for him, loves him. And then when you meet him, like you get the same sort of genuineness and authenticity. Um, and I think he's able to project that online in a way that's very true to reality. So I think like, yeah, he's like one of those unicorns who has incredible, obviously brain as well as like a, a deeply compassionate person. Um, my friend, uh, an old time friend, um, who's now in venture Courtney from Sousa ventures. we had our first job together. And so I have a larger sample size there, but like, again, she's just like a real person and she doesn't even have Twitter, uh, but has, you know, managed to rise to a great fund and, you know, a partnership role. And I think that's like a testament to the fact that she builds real relationships. Um, and you know, there's a bunch of others. I mean, I'm, again, this is, I'm sort of, avoiding answering it entirely because it's so inherently biased, but like yep. I worked with um, Brett at charge and like, he's just like one of the highest EQ people I know, like natural connector, community builder. Um, but there are a lot, there are a lot of people who I think are, are high EQ. I guess the, the question will be like, how do you truly level that up and how do you make that as much of a product as possible? and a part of like your playbook in a way that is replicable. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, should we wrap it up with, with our, our kicker question? Let's wrap it up. All right. What percentage of land mammals could you outrun on land? What is your plan to improve this percentage over time? This one's really tough. Um, and I think it might be the toughest question that we answered that we've answered so far. I'm really out of shape right now. I think a lot of people have maybe used quarantine to to get in shape. I have I'm probably in like the slowest shape of my life. I was a runner in high school. I probably could have outrun like 99% of land animals back then. Yeah, today I think I'm probably closer to like five to ten percent of, of land mammals, unfortunately. And to, wow, you, to 99% is you uh, really super fast. I mean, like <laughs> yeah, I think like a cheetah maybe could have could have taken me, but Otherwise, like super fast. Um, now, you know, I think, I don't know if like a sloth counts as a, as a land mammal. Yes. If so, then I think I have a sloth beat and there's probably a few other animals that I have beat, but ugh. so the plan to improve it is at some point I'll, I'll maybe start running. I think like, and this ties actually into the earlier thing and then I'll ask you not to make this serious, but I thought when I started writing and like working for myself that I'd have all this time, oh, but I totally. end up filling it up with just like, coming down and like to the basement, which I'm in right now and like trying to research or like figure out what I'm going to write about or whatever. When I know that the, the healthiest thing for me to do would be to run and just like unblock things, but I always feel kind of panicked. So I don't do it. And so I actually have less free time now than I had when I had a job because there's clear boundaries in a job. A hundred percent. Yeah. You think like, Oh cool. I'm sort of boss of myself. So like I'm going to create this unbelievable schedule for myself where I'm going to you know, block out this time for this, this time for that. But then you get into the, you know, dopamine circuits of Twitter and like you have people asking questions and email, which is always lovely, but then you want to answer those. And um, yeah, it's hard to, hard to maintain. So what's your answer? I think we need to level set a little bit, which is when we say outrun, are we saying that if they tag me essentially, I've gotten it or is it like a race over a specific period because it isn't this there's a one of those weird things that humans outrun horses over a marathon 
which yep. is wild. I think so you can I, choose to interpret this. What kind of runner are you? This, this will say a lot about who you are. I'm, I'm, I mean, it was sort of an academic question because I'm not a very good <laughs> runner at all. <laughs> um, I think I obviously prefer my chances in distance just because hopefully I have more mental grit than a horse or yep. another animal. No, I've always said um, that about you. <laughs> Mario, <laughs> slightly smarter and more gritty than a horse. <laughs> um, I don't know. This is a great question and one that I'll probably be pondering for a while. I guess I think I could, in a tag scenario, outrun almost no land mammals. Mm. I mean, they're fast. Um, yeah. Fast for a reason. Humans have evolved towards a sedentary life, my friend. Yeah, we, we got tools and kind of all downhill from there. Yeah. Um, so an unsatisfying answer, uh, but hopefully this was a enjoyable watch for people that wanted to go down a rabbit hole, an animal I'm definitely slower than, uh, <laughs> into the newsletter game. Thanks for watching, everybody. Good talking to you, Mario. Good chatting, man. Bye. Bye.